was it bad? What was it like working with him, working with her? You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today, I am so happy to announce my episode with a true legend of the American stage, eight-time Tony nominee, Jane Alexander. In addition to her four-year tenure as the chairwoman of the National Endowment for the Arts, Jane also appeared on Broadway in The Great White Hope, Hamlet, Goodbye Fidel, The Heiress, Find Your Way Home, Monday After the Miracle, The Night of the Iguana, Shadowlands, The Visit, The Sisters Rosenzweig, and most recently, Grand Horizons. She is also a distinguished screen actress, having appeared in Kramer vs. Kramer, Testament, Last Love, Brubaker, All the President's Men, and Eleanor and Franklin. So now, without further ado, here's Jane Alexander. Thank you. So I would love to um, begin by asking you, how did you first become interested in theater? You know, I think it, it really happened when my dad came back from the Second World War in 1945. He took me to the ballet in Boston. And I was just a little girl. And... Um, I just fell in love with what I saw on stage. I'd never seen anything on stage before, never. We didn't have TV, we didn't, just the, the blurbs from radio uh, about the war, you know? So this was mind blowing for me. And I said, I just said to myself, oh, that's where I wanna be. Now I never became um, a dancer I tried, but it didn't work out. Uh, but uh, I did decide around nine years old in school, I was going to do every school play I could be in. So that's, and it worked out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And did your parents approve of your interests or how did that go? My mom grew up a very poor kid. I live here in Nova Scotia. Um, and my mother's family's been here about 280 years. They were some of the founders of some of the cities of Nova Scotia, colonialists. And um, she, she was a poor kid, you know? Yeah. And she couldn't understand how I could make a living yeah. in the theater. My dad, on the other hand, grew up in Nebraska and he, he, be, he became a doctor. And when he was going to Harvard undergrad, uh, there was a theater group uh, of actors from, well, kids who wanted to act in the summer, summer stock company, that composed of Henry Fonda, what? Jimmy Stewart, <laughs> my dad, who thankfully did not go into acting, <laughs> sticked with medicine, <laughs> stuck with medicine, and then a lot of, uh, a lot, quite a lot of famous people. Um, uh, Sullivan, uh, what was her name? Can't remember her first name, but anyway, Margaret, <laughs> Sullivan, Margaret Sullivan, and so on. So he was already inclined to love the idea that his daughter 
it was okay if I didn't go into medicine. I mean, that was for boys, right? <laughs> but if I wanted to go into acting, that was great. So he, he did give his approval. As long as I had an ace in the hole, he kept saying, you've got to have an ace in the hole. <clears throat> you have to have a profession that you can make some money in if it doesn't work out. And um, so I was a math major in college and I thought I was going to be an IBM programmer. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's, back then, that was a rather romantic thing to be, believe it or not. <laughs> but today, it's not so romantic. So anyway, that's how it happened, Charles. Oh, yeah. And so that brings up the question about your dad. Um, what was it like when you later got to work with Henry Fonda on first Monday in October? Oh, yes. I did a couple of things with Hank. Um, I was very, very fortunate. I did a, a road show of Time of Your Life, the William Saroyan play with Hank. We went to the Kennedy Center in Washington. We toured a couple of places in the United States, LA. Uh, never brought it into New York. And that was my first introduction to him. And of course, my dad came to see it. And they were fast friends, you know, in their arms together. And, and he was very, Hank was very complimentary about me and I was blushing and, and all that. And um, I had already met Jane Fonda, his daughter, oh. through people in, in Los Angeles. And I said, oh, what a remarkable daughter you have. And he said, yes, and look, we have two Janes. And uh, so that was great. And then I did uh, First Monday in October with Hank, and that was my very favorite role to do with him. He was astonishing to work with. He was so, uh, so present on stage. You know, very, very much there. And I loved every minute of working with him on stage. He was a, a taciturn man backstage. He was quiet. He, um, he didn't make any gossip or speak very much about anything. If he came into the green room where the other actors were, he would just sit down with a newspaper. It was, <laughs> so we, we all took him on his own terms, but he was a giant, of course, in the business. So it was a great, great production. And it predated Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman on the Supreme Court. Uh, it predated her by a couple of years. Yeah. So that was pretty exciting. And then, so to go back to the beginning for a moment, how did your move to New York City happen at first? Oh, my. Well, <clears throat> because I did want to honor what my dad wanted me to do, which was have an ace in the hole, get a liberal arts education. I went to Sarah Lawrence College for a couple of years. It was not my first choice. I wanted to go to um, the Columbia School of Dramatic Arts, and I got into the school. And then in April of my senior year, they sent me a letter saying, we closed the school. I said, it's my senior year, it's April, what am I supposed to do in the fall? And my headmaster of the school, he said, well, I know you should go to Sarah Lawrence. I said, no, it's a rich girl's school. I'm not going there. He said, you're going to go and you're going to love it. It's got theater, all kinds of performing arts, visual arts, and math. So uh, I did get in and uh, I went there for 
two years, did my junior year abroad in the University of Edinburgh. And that is when I became kind of the star of the university route in Edinburgh that year, playing um, Ophelia and Hamlet first. And this, this, this was student productions. And then um, Nora in, in Sean O'Casey's The Plow and the Stars, which is a beautiful Irish play. And, and then I did, um, oh gosh, what's it called? Orpheus Descending. And that was the hit of the festival. Back then the Edinburgh Festival was very small. And we, I was in the fringe part of it. The university was, students were in the fringe part of it, but it was one of the hits of the festival. So I wrote my dad and I said, dad, I wanna come back. I wanna go, I wanna go right to New York, be an actress. And he said, no, I think you should go back to college to finish up your year. And I wrote, and I got back home and I was so despondent. And he said, okay. And by the springtime, I, I actually didn't go, I didn't go right to New York because dad was kind of wanting to get me back in school. And so I went up and was, became a ski bum in Vermont for the whole winter. <laughs> of course, fell in love with a ski instructor and just stayed up there until a friend of mine from Sarah Lawrence College called me up, she tracked me down in Vermont. And she said, Jane, do you still wanna be an actress? I said, yeah. She said, well, you get your ass, those are her words, back to New York, I've got a job for you, working for an agent in an office, $40 a week, take it or leave it. You gotta be here within the week. So that's what I did. <laughs> and then, so once you were in New York, how did you begin pursuing acting out of working for an agency? You know, uh, I didn't really, I didn't know anybody really. Uh, I knew a, a couple of gals from Sarah Lawrence, but we were all kind of in the same boat, not knowing anybody much. And um, I just picked up the paper backstage. It was a newspaper then. And it had lists of uh, casting, both union and non. You were either an equity person or you weren't in the union yet. And I wasn't in the union, of course. So I started to do some off, off Broadway things. And one of the first ones I did, uh, the star was Frank Langella. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So that was kind of wonderful to work with a great young man like that early on in his career. And then I, um, the agent I was working for didn't pay any attention to me at all. He didn't, <laughs> he didn't want to help me at all. I was kind of like, oh, okay. So he wouldn't even come and see the shows that I got in. But I, I persevered, that's what it was. And I also, being a math major, I made a graph, a, a, a graph that was, I gave it two years. If the line on the graph, which was callbacks, the number of callbacks I got for auditions kept going up, I would stick it out. And after two years, the graph was of course way up. And I said, daddy, this is what I'm gonna do. I'm staying here. So, and then pretty soon I started to get work in regional theaters yeah. first. 
And then how did um, A Thousand Clowns, which was your Broadway debut, happen? Yeah, that's right. I was understudying Sandy Dennis. So it wasn't my Broadway debut, oh. but I did get to go on um, a, a, a number of times. And that was due, in those days, Charles, we had to make the rounds literally with our feet walk from one producer's office to another. Fortunately, most of them were in the Broadway area. You probably have heard this from other actors. They were in the Broadway area. So it was just to walk around. And um, uh, one day I was in a producer's, I can't remember which producer was the producer who did A Thousand Clowns. And the secretary behind the desk, when I walked in, cause I was kind of a beatnik looking gal already with a braid over one shoulder and that kind of thing and big coats and had a little flair. And she looked at me and she said, gosh, you would be just great in A Thousand Clowns, which we're doing. Um, so uh, we need an understudy to Sandy Dennis. And um, so I'm gonna mention it to the boss and maybe you'll come back. So I came back and I got the job. And that's how that worked. You know, these things work by luck. Somebody, somebody takes you under their wing like that secretary did. Yeah. What was it like when you had to go on? And did you often have short notice for that or? Oh yeah, Oh, you had short notice. And in that production, I, I had to be at the theater all the time. So I got to, the wonderful part was that Jason Robards was playing the lead. And boy, was it fun to watch him every night. I, I sat out usually in the back of the house and I would watch him and they would laugh their heads off. And he was terrible, Charles. He would cross, cross the line sometimes and talk right to the audience. Oh, he just say, oh, you like that, huh? Okay, wait till you see this. <laughs> I've never seen that since. I'm, I mean, I've seen some of it, but not quite as boldly as he did it. So when you were um, a standby at this time, were you encouraged to make your performance a lot like Sandy Dennis or did you do it differently? No, she, no, Sandy was unique. You oh. could never be like Sandy if you tried. <laughs> she was really remarkable. She was so unusual and fun to watch. Uh, I was just kind of myself, I guess. And I didn't get to go on that many times, but Dane, Dane Clark, I think is, came in was it Dane Clark? I think so, after, to replace Robards. And so I got to play with him more often, but he was kind of a scared performer and he didn't oh. like the way I was performing often. And in the wings, he would he would say to people, why is she doing that? Why oh. is she And I was like, ooh. <laughs> now at the same time, uh, I was also part of, Second City Workshop. Second City was this big, you know, company, very popular. Improv was very popular. Mike Nichols and Elaine May. And um, Second City was in town. So I, I got a chance to be part of a Second City Workshop that Paul Sills, who was the leading guy of director of, of Second City, um, started. And four of us, Olympia Dukakis and me, Paul Dooley, no, it wasn't Paul Dooley. Olympia, oh, Alan Alda and uh, Dana Elkar. Oh, the four wow. of us were, were um, 
he was grooming us to take us on the road and do improv, just the four of us. And we were having a ball. And then one day he, he said, can I walk you home? And I said, sure. And he said, Jane, we're ready to go. We're gonna go on the road now in about two weeks. So I just want to tell you, it's all set. We're going to about 18 cities. I don't know what it was. And I had to turn and tell him, I said, Paul, I'm pregnant. My first husband and I said, I can't go on the road. I'm four months pregnant. And he just about died. And I said, I'm so sorry. And he said, well, you're going to need some money. I'm going to, I'm going to ask uh, David Shepard, who ran the Compass Players. He said, I'm going to ask him to give you a job because they're going to open a, a review, an improv review at upstairs at the downstairs in the Plaza Hotel. And you're going to be in it. So I was. He saved my life because for the next five months, I was in that review. Uh, and it was wonderful. Oh, yeah. And then, so um, after doing that was perhaps one of your most famous roles that you were nominated for both a Tony Award and an Oscar for, which was The Great White Hope. And so how did you first hear about this, sir? How did you? Well, I, I, I told you that I was doing quite a bit of regional theater early on. And then um, I uh, was cast by Ed Sharon, who became my husband several years later, um, cast as St. Joan in the first production of, I think it was 1965, yeah. I already had this baby boy, <laughs> it was my Jason, and um, my husband at the time, Bob and I, uh, went to Washington, D.C. Bob became, um, children's theater director there and I did I was the leading lady of the company for a while and then it the company expanded the next we had like 30 members John Voigt we had a great great company Ned Beatty um, and I was one of the leading actresses so during the third season um, Ed handed me a a script. It was about that thick. And he said, read this because I want, I'm interested in you playing Ellie, the lead in this play called The Great White Hope. So I've read it and I found it wonderful and fascinating. And I came back and I said, I just love it, but it, it ends so strangely. And he said, Jane, that was just the first act. <laughs> the original script was huge and it took us over four and a half hours to read it the wow. first time but that was cut and in the in the production in Washington DC at Arena Stage then where we were was three and a half hours and James Earl and I were lucky enough to be in that and then they wanted to move it to Broadway and then the rest is history oh yes yeah, yeah. And so did you receive a lot of like backlash and things for doing that at that time? I did, yeah. Not, um, yeah, I did. And it was mostly from white bigots, I think. I don't think, I don't ever remember a black person 
uh, openly say to me anything negative. Uh, it was a huge production, you know. There's been nothing like it yeah. since. It had um, 63 actors playing over 200 roles. And it was, um, the majority of them were black. And uh, it was the first time that you'd ever seen uh, a black person and a white person in bed together. Yeah. Couple and, and uh, uh, I, it didn't happen much in the in the Washington DC production. I don't remember a lot of negativity towards me, but on Broadway, I did get hate mail. And I it was so painful I couldn't read it. And it was scary. I mean, yeah. some of them really wanted to take me out. So I, I told the stage manager just to take care of all my mail because I couldn't read it. And that somebody would walk me home at night and so James Earl doesn't remember getting any hate mail. I'm not sure he did, but I did. And then, then, then during that year, which was so exciting because the play was such a huge hit, and of course won so many of the awards, Pulitzer and Tony and everything. Um, when um, the, the audiences started to change and become more black, as the year went by, then they were laughing when I died. And that was very, very hard for James Earl to take. And oh. so he crossed the line as well, like Jason Robards did. He crossed the line once in a while and said, he got very angry at the audience because for him, it was a deep love story. Yeah. And it was very, very hard for him to take because he was sobbing over my dead body when they were laughing. Yeah. Yeah. And did you ever face like that same kind of backlash from people within the industry afterwards or was that? Um, not for The Great White Hope, but I did for uh, a play called Goodbye Fidel, oh. in which I played a Cuban aristocrat. I mean, by that, I mean a Cuban woman who was really of, originally of German descent. She wasn't Latina. And um, I had a lot of people who were uh, Latin origin and some of them not protesting my playing that role. And they, these were, some of them were my friends. Yeah. I, at, outside the theater as I was going in and I was like, well, does this mean I can't do any Chekhov because I'm not Russian? I was really, really taken aback by it. And, you know, we're seeing a little, we're seeing quite a bit of it today. Yeah. In the cancel culture uh, that, you know, if, if you're not queer, you're not supposed to play a queer role. <laughs> and I'm like, well, aren't we all actors? Aren't all of us? So it was very hard to take for me back then. I understand it a little bit better today. And then speaking of um, playing queer roles, you did a very um, revolutionary movie as well called The Question of Love. Oh with, yeah, with, with uh, Jenna Rollins. Yeah, and oh wow, great. That. That, was, um, that was pretty darned exciting. And it's a sad, sad story based on a true story. Oh. 
and about and 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 in the story, Jenna loses custody of her children, and um, it. I think if I remember correctly, it was ABC movie. There were a lot of network movies then. There were only you know, there were three networks and there was PBS, and that was about it back then, early seventies, I think, and. Um, ABC said, you're allowed three touches and no kisses, nothing erotic. So Jenna, who is the director? I think it was Jerry Thorpe. I can't remember, but anyway, he had a Jenna brushing my hair. It was the most erotic brushing <laughs> I've ever had. It was beautiful. My hair was long then and she would just, brush it slowly <laughs> like this. <laughs> I said, great, I love this. <laughs> so we did three touches. I think the other one was some hand oh. thing. I can't remember what the third was, but we managed to sneak in the fact that there was a sexual relationship there. <laughs> <laughs> and then to go back for a minute to The Great White Hope, what was it like to recreate that for the screen? as well, and did your performance change for? Oh, well, the truth is it didn't change very much. Um, Howard Sackler wrote the screenplay as well. Martin Ritt replaced my husband, he wasn't my husband's, Ed Sharon at the time, the director, um, replaced uh, Ed as director. Ed had done a couple of movies, but they, 20th Century Fox really wanted somebody who was tried and true. And Martin Ritt was, had an extraordinary career and was known for working wonderfully with actors. And, but the problem was Ed's vision of Great White Hope on Broadway was so strong and so dynamic from scene to scene that it was hard, I think, for Martin to envision anything else. Yeah. He tried to open it up but would often come back to the kind of power that Ed could pack into a, a stage look. And Howard didn't change a lot of dialogue. He eliminated a lot of dialogue that wouldn't have worked in the movies. Like um, there's a beautiful speech that James Earl gives me, we called it the honey speech. And he was talking about uh, how honey, honey that he used to love to eat as a child and how it would drip and all this, it was beautiful, that, that was cut. There were a lot of long dialogue things that were cut. But other than that, it was virtually the same. And the, the powerhouse scene that I have is the one with the district attorney that Hal Holbrook played in the movie. And that is virtually the same as it was uh, on stage. And with that being said, though, do you find that there is a difference between how you approach a movie and how you approach a show or? Yes, but I can't think of another movie that I did the play before. Maybe I did, but for the most part, the movies were all brand new, which I like better, you know, because um, the theater has its own dynamic, don't you think? Yeah. I mean, it's its own power, and it... it it, it's always, you're there with the audience. It's the most, for me, it's the most exciting thing. And um, there's nothing more exciting than theater to my mind, yeah. the performing arts. I mean, 
dance is great and music is fantastic, but this interplay that we do in acting with the audience just cannot be found anywhere else. So uh, I, I I'm very, very happy that I got into film and TV, but it's a totally different experience than yeah. the theater, my first love and my always love. Because even though your fellow performers and the director might say, great, or that, it's not the same, you know? It's not the live thing. Yeah. That I'm sure you love. Yes, yes. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. So I don't want to ask you too much about movies, but I would love to ask about two great film stars that you worked with, which were um, Laurence Olivier and, and well, Elizabeth Taylor. Oh, good, <laughs> good. Because I adore them both. And I loved them both from the time I was a, a young girl. I mean, when I first saw Elizabeth in National Velvet, I was a horse freak when I was young anyway. When I saw her in National Velvet, I thought, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. I, I was pretty young. And um, so I was a great fan. I watched everything that she did growing up. I thought she was probably the most beautiful woman I ever saw. And that did not, she did not disappoint. When I met her, she was still so smashingly beautiful and so gentle and so dear. <laughs> but she was chronically late oh. all the time, all the time. She was chronically late. And this was a TV movie and she'd never done a TV movie before. And I think the uh, second AD, who was the one who's responsible for going and, and getting the actors, wrangling the actors, if you will, to get on the set, was a little intimidated by who oh. she was. So he may have knocked timidly on the door and said, Miss Taylor, we're ready for you now. But she sometimes just never came out. So I, I didn't have any sense of intimidation. I just really just loved her. So I'd go and I'd knock hard and I'd say, come on, Elizabeth, we gotta go, let's go, Liz. And she'd say, oh, are we ready? I said, yeah, we've been ready for 45 minutes. We better go. Cause they, you know, they want to get this scene done because they have eight more scenes to do, whatever. She said, oh my, all right. Uh, and I said, if you want, I'll wait right here. She said, no, no, I'll be there. And we hope she come, <laughs> that's the way it was. But you know, I think that she just grew up with a, a like royalty. She had people who took care of her. So to come on a TV set and not have that same kind of entourage. And, but she did her own makeup. Wow. Yeah. Michael Westmore, who was a great makeup artist, was in charge of the show. And she met with him early before. And she said, she said, now, Michael, I'll do my own makeup. And he was like a little aghast. <laughs> because he had a feeling she was gonna do the Cleopatra makeup, which she sort of hung on to for all of her life after she did Cleopatra. And it was, of course, you know, for something that took place in the 1950s. And it was just like... <laughs> but he got her all the makeup she wanted. She had a huge basket like this big of makeup that he got her. And he just refined it a little bit, but she was darling. I really liked her a lot. And then Laurence Olivier, oh my God, had a crush on him since 
forever. And he, to work with him was one of the greatest things in my life, even though, you know, it was a Harold Robbins pulp novel, it, The Betsy. Um, <laughs> he was great. He came up to, it, my friend Ed Herman and I were, were in that movie together. Um, we did uh, Eleanor and Franklin and the White House years after that. The Rose played the Roosevelt's, but Ed had grown up in Michigan. And this was about a big car family. And uh, Olivier was playing the Sion, the guy who ran the whole thing like Ford. And he came up to us one day and he said, how is my East Michigan accent? <laughs> and I said, Ed? <laughs> and Ed said, sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> so we didn't know what he was really talking about. <laughs> he had worked on his East Michigan accent. Anyway, he was great. And we did a lot of night shooting in Newburyport. And... Um, no, Newport, Rhode Island, sorry. And he wasn't feeling well. So he was put in the garage on a big table like, that was a, a massage table or something and would lie down and the makeup artist would put on his makeup at night and I'd love to sneak and peek and look and see and he would be sound asleep <laughs> having his makeup done. And then he'd, He'd wake up and do the scene brilliantly. And, and then we'd have um, our, what we call our, what they call our dinner at like three in the morning or two in the morning. And he would be there and regale all of us with Tommy Lee Jones, one first or second film. And I had a, I, I knew Tommy Lee. I'll tell you that. Did I, did you know that story? No, no. I'll tell you that story because it's pretty good. So I told you my father was a doctor and he had been in this group, the group players, the university players with Henry Fonda and Jimmy Stewart. And so we loved actors. And one day I'm in the Great White Hope and there's a knock on my dressing room door at the end. And this young man just stands there, handsome young man, and hands me a letter, which I open and it's from my father. And it says, Dear Janie, Please help this young man get an agent. He wants to be an actor, which I think he'll be far better than he is a football player at Harvard. <laughs> so that's how I met Tommy Lee Jones. Wow. And indeed, I did get him an agent because he was such an appealing, handsome young man. And he, he was a terrific actor. And before I knew it, he was working with Zero Mostel on Broadway. So I was like, whoa. <laughs> anyway, Tommy Lee was in The Betsy and he was the only one that he had, he would challenge Olivier all the time. And we were like, why is he doing this? <laughs> like, he'd say, well, I don't think that's true. And we go, whoa. And Olivier would say, oh, well, what do you think then, you know? It was funny, but we had, we, we had a good time and I was so happy uh, to have worked with, with, with Lawrence Olivier, Larry, they called him. And 
curious to know, do you have a preference between dramatic and comedic roles? I got known early on for dramatic roles. And I think a lot of that was, it started back in Edinburgh when I played Nora, who goes kind of crazy. Her husband's in the Irish troubles war. Um, and I got known for what they call high emotion. Back then they called it high emotion. And so I would be sent up for those kinds of things. So I, I was given them quite a bit, but <laughs> I really loved comedy because my dad was one of the funniest people in the world. We, just a jokester, so much fun to grow up with. And I didn't get that much comedy. What can I say? I did a lot of Shaw as a young actress in regional theater, George Bernard Shaw, and some of the comedies of Shaw. And then I, I did a, a play on Broadway called Six Rooms Review with Jerry Orbach. And uh, that was a comedy. So I, I thought maybe I'd be cast some more, but no. There were an awful, awful lot of good comedians, women around at that time. So I guess I was relegated to drama. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'd be curious to know with being such a great star on Broadway, were there ever roles that you turned down? There probably, yeah. I mean, they they may not have been in the in the big state in the big production part yet. I also often based, and I still do. I often based doing any Broadway show on who the producer was because back then there were giants of producers, and I was lucky enough to work with quite a few of them. Um, uh, Roger Stevens, uh, Bob Whitehead. Um, Alexander Cohen, Elliot Martin, Kermit Bloomgarden, wonderful, brilliant guy. We were working on a production uh, that uh, I can't remember the name of the show, but and it had a, a Hollywood actor who, unfortunately, something physically happened to him. I can't remember his name. He's been long dead now, but it was that, that was the only thing. I didn't turn it down. It just sort of had to close down. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I can't really remember turning down because it wasn't like I got a slew of offers all the time. No. That brings me to ask, what were auditions like for you? Did you enjoy that process? or I, I, I didn't mind doing auditions for theater. When it got to be doing them for film, I had a really, it was rough oh. for me. And I think it was sometime during the 80s that I said to my agent, I can't do this anymore. There's enough, I have enough, there's enough film on me, you know, and I have the reel that 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 shows you, you know, different ways, different scenes you've done, different movies and stuff. I said that they have the reel and I don't feel that I do auditions for film well. And I said, I'm, I'm not gonna do them anymore. Either they offer me the role or not. So he said, he said, okay, I agree, I agree with you. And I've never auditioned since. 
Wow. I'll meet, I'd love to, I'd love to meet the directors, but I don't feel it's necessary with all this, this footage on me to say, can she do this or not? Now, if it's a really tough thing, like with an accent or something like that, I'm happy to try it out, but I'm a slow worker, Charles. I'm slow. I, they always wanted me to do, um, go up to Williamstown Theater, you know, and, oh. and be part of that summer group and do the plays. And I said, I can't because I can't come up with the character in two weeks. I can't flesh it out like I want to. And I'd feel that I was stumbling. Yeah. Because for me, it has to be four, five, six weeks before I feel. So I think that's also why I'm reluctant to audition for film is because I'm such a, a nothing, you know, in the beginning, I'm just a, a lump. I don't know. <laughs> is there a, a role you played either on stage or on screen that you would say was the hardest for you to sort of find in that way? There are roles that are very difficult anyway. But when you have a like the, the playing for time, uh, the one about the women's orchestra in Auschwitz was um, a CBS TV film with Vanessa Redgrave and a lot of other great actresses. But the writing was terrific. It was Arthur Miller wrote the screenplay. So when the writing supports you, um, those are those are ones that I have less, even though that was a very hard role that I was playing. Alma Rose was the conductor of the orchestra and here she was trying to hold this raggle taggle band of women together as an orchestra in order to save their lives, in order to save all of us from being gassed. So I, I made the choice to come on very strong and very hard with them, like a, a coach or a general in battle. And I think it paid off in the end, uh, but it, it was a decision that I had to make and I didn't know if I was going in the right direction. So, but the hardest things for me is when the writing is not very good. Yeah. And so I would love to ask about what is that process like when you're doing a revival or a role that's already been done, such as maybe a night, a night the night of the iguana would be a good example. Oh, yeah. Well, the night of the Agona, I just feel I was miscast. Oh. Uh, Ted Mann was a great guy. But between you and me, he wasn't the greatest director. And he said, how about playing Maxine? And I said, well, I think I'm better for Hannah. He said, well, Maria Tucci's doing Ham Hannah. I said, oh, okay. Well, it, I said, it'd be fun to play Maxine. Um, and it was, it was okay, but I would never have, uh, I would never have cast myself in it if it was gonna go on to be, I don't know. A, I shouldn't have played it. That's the truth of it. I probably shouldn't, but it was, it was fun to try. And I, I, I mean, I wanted to do some Williams um, and I never got the opportunity. In fact, there are some Williams heroines that I'm absolutely perfect for, like Eccentricities of a Nightingale or um, even um, Sweet Bird of Youth or, you know, I can think of a lot of things that I would have been great, 
but I never was asked to do those. Uh, even the streetcar named Desire, I could have done that, uh, but never was asked. So I think that was probably also in play when Ted said, so I could just do one Tennessee Williams, you know. And so what was your collaboration like with Edwin Sharon and what was it like to be in the sort of dual roles of husband and wife and director and star? Well, the wonderful thing was that we were both married to other people and both our families were friends and our kids were best buddies from a tiny early age. Um, my, my boy was two and Jeff was three. His boy, Jeff was three when they became fast friends. So um, the, the, the work relationship predated uh, the romantic relationship for a couple of years. So we already had uh, many, many plays together that we'd experienced. And it was a wonderful working relationship. He's absolutely my favorite director and he taught me so much. Uh, I remember when I, I first played, I can't remember whether it was St. Joan or, yeah, I think it must've been St. Joan, uh, Shaw's St. Joan, the first play I did with him and there at the arena. And he came up to me during a dress rehearsal and he quietly said, Jane, there's just one thing wrong with your performance. I said, yeah. He said, you can't be seen and you can't be heard. <laughs> like, whoa, that's like major. <laughs> so he said, I want you to work on those two things. I said, you bet. I know just what you're talking about. So I went out, I would go out into a field because at that time, Southwest Washington DC had been torn, to, torn down to build a whole new development. So it was all rubble and fields. And I just yelled and developed my voice very large. And then I thought, yes, I'm going to bring, Joan has presence, you know, she has presence when she comes on stage. People turn to her, look at her. And I learned so much from Ed, it was great. Yeah, yeah. And well, that relationship of working together was never ever a problem. Oh. We went on and did many plays and films afterwards. And what was it in addition to that, like balancing the roles of being a mother and being an actress? That's always so hard. Yeah. So hard. Yeah, that was very, very hard. But then after I divorced Bob, gosh, Jace was eight. And so his, his father, would take care of him a lot if I was on the road or anything. And then I'd come back home and that was very, very hard to balance. Never, never was satisfying to me. And I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to resolve it. Yeah. So it's, it's just what we do, you know? I think, I try to think, well, who else, in what kind of profession in the world has this kind of dilemma? And then I'd always think of the military and how women in the military just go off and men go off for years. And so I would love to ask about, um, speaking of, of the military, of your activism with the Vietnam War when that was happening. And so what has it been like to balance being an actor and being an activist? How do those two things intersect? And 
they didn't really intersect for me that much. I mean, I've never been somebody to promote myself on media or even, even take my activism to the, to the point that I might have on the media because I always didn't want to be blacklisted in any way. Yeah. Because then I wouldn't be able to do anything for that cause. Uh, but just showing up and marching and, and um, if, if I ever was asked to do a lecture, which I often was in the 70s about uh, nuclear disarmament, I was a big activist for nuclear disarmament back then. And in the 60s, that was the Vietnam War, also marching, of course, for civil rights, and then the feminist movement. There was a lot going on at that time. And there were many, many of us doing it. So I never felt, it, you know, the focus was just on me. Yeah. There were a lot of us. There was um, uh, Joanne Woodward and I, and uh, I think some of the other women who were prominent uh, went to Europe together to talk about anti-nuclear issues and stuff like that. So there, were, there was a lot of camaraderie. Yeah. Yeah. More so than I, curiously, more so, I shouldn't say that more so than I see today because lots of people, it's different issues than there were back yeah. then. Yeah, you know, like Me Too is a different issue than feminism. Yeah. It's about fe it's about women, but it's, and men, whatever. Yeah, and so I would love to, I know we have some unlimited time, but I would love to talk to you about um, the Sisters Rosenzweig, which was oh. a very famous role of yours. And so how did this come about? Sisters Rosenzweig, oh yeah, Wendy Wasserstein and Dan Sullivan, took me to lunch and they were checking me out that, you know, they knew that I, I didn't like, I, I wasn't probably going to audition and they never asked me to, but they just wanted to check me out. And uh, I hadn't read the play yet or anything, but I loved what uh, Wendy was writing back then. She was such a star, you know, such a fascinating woman. So um, they were checking me out and then I got a call the next day from my agent saying, you're in. So that was a joy and it was a joy to play. I mean, that is a comedy, but I was a straight man. <laughs> Madeline Kahn, who I, Charles, I don't think I've ever enjoyed being on stage with anybody as much as Madeline. I mean, she just would hit these lines and the audience would just die. And it would go on, the laugh would go on and on and on. Uh, maybe I was the one who set it up in one way or another on stage, but she was the one who garnered the, the and I, I just was so happy to be with her. Yeah. So that's why I say, I guess I would have liked to have done more comedy because it's so much fun. Yeah. And did that show change a lot over time or was it basically the same from? Well, uh, Franny McDormand left. Franny met Dormand was in the, the off-Broadway one that we did at Lincoln Center, the first one. And um, I think she felt uncomfortable in the role because the third sister was not as fully fleshed out as Madeline's in my role. So she left and uh, Christine 
not Christine Eversall. Oh, you can look it up. Anyway, she was great. She came in. So that was the main difference, I think. We had a different third sister. The, I think everybody else, uh, Jefferson Mays and the others stayed in the Broadway production. And so you mentioned that it will often take you around four to six weeks or something like that to fully flesh out a role. And so how do you begin that process? Like when you first get a script, what do you do to start thinking about that? Uh, I read it. I have a gut instinct when I get a script right off the bat. And I hold on to that gut instinct because it's what I feel a lot of the audience is going to feel too, because they only see it once usually. And then I just put it down for a while, if I get it in advance far enough, and I just think about it. And I just, it comes up. There's a lot of osmosis that happens. And I trust that. And then I start, sometimes it, it will require research, uh, if it's, particularly if it's a role like St. Joan. Um, uh, I have to do some research on my own just to figure out what the consequences are of this figure in history. Eleanor Roosevelt required two years of research. But, and even if it's just somebody that has to cook on stage, those kinds of things are important to get down under your belt. So all of that comes in, or if it's an accent, I start to uh, do the accent all the time. I do it in life, I do it ordering in a restaurant to see how it goes over. <laughs> and uh, then, um, then I will, I used to do line after line of writing notes in my script. Now I don't do any, virtually none, because it's all up here. Yeah. But I'm also getting different roles now at this age than I got when I was younger. And I'd be curious to know throughout your years, have you ever felt any like sexism in the industry or things like that? Oh, you mean me too kind of thing? That that are simply like other kinds of discrimination. Yeah, I think I, I can hardly think of an actress I know who didn't experience yeah. it. Um, there was a casting couch. Yeah. We knew we knew about that, but there was also a whisper network. And the network would be, yes, and don't get alone with, with Johnny K because watch out. Yeah. And if he asks you up to his hotel room to talk about the next role, don't go unless you want to. Now, the, the interesting thing was I had two actress friends who actually wanted to take that route. Oh. And they were discriminated against by other women. And I was more like, well, if that's how they want to, get apart, let them do it. So that was an interesting problem. <laughs> I said, you know, you shouldn't look at them with such dirty looks. They just, that's just the way that they operate. So, <laughs> um, so all of those things existed. You know, it was a very different time. It was a different kind of response. We expected it. We grew up expecting it. So one of the first things my dad taught me as a little girl was how to knee a guy in the balls. And I said, daddy, that's gonna hurt. He said, Janie, that's the point. 
They're not going to go after you. I only had to do that once as an adult, but it worked. It's pretty horrifying. (laughs) And and other things, I don't know. I, I just knew how to take care of those situations. If somebody really came on very, very strong, pushing me down or something like that, I'd start to laugh. I say, no, 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 whoa, (laughs) I don't know, it worked. And I never was one to tell tales out of school, so. Yeah. It's tough, it's men and women, we all get into situations where these kind of things happen and people don't listen to your no. Yeah. But um, I'm, I'm glad it's all out in the open now. I'm so glad. Yeah. It's all out in the open, but I don't want women to get, uh, I want them to keep a strength of their own and meet each challenge as it comes because they're all different, the challenges. And so I'd love to ask you finally about a role that I was lucky enough to see you in, which was in Grand Horizons. And yeah. so what made you decide to come back to Broadway after 20 years in, in that show? <sighs> yeah, I didn't. I didn't really have any aspiration to go back to to theater because theater is at my age is very hard for me. It takes enormous uh, stamina and energy. And then it's my whole life. And I have this whole other life we haven't talked about, which is wildlife conservation. And I'm a nature girl. And so, but uh, David Kolodner, who's my agent at William Morris Endeavor, who's just one of the greatest guys, He said, Jane, there's a script and they really want to see you for this. And I'd like you to read it. Well, I read it and I laughed out loud five times. Now, if I laugh out loud five times, that's a signal to me, pay attention. (laughs) So I I went to meet Lee Silverman, the director and uh, Beth Wall, the playwright, and I fell in love with them. I said, oh my God, these women are too great young women and I love what their their whole focus and I I just had the greatest time I'm so glad I did it I had more fun well that was a comedy there I did another comedy I forgot and um Michael Yuri oh my god I said is this the greatest actor I've ever worked with (laughs) it was wonderful so I'm so glad I did it but it did take a lot of, it, it took all of my, my working out, my hours. Yeah. And um, I do have this other life that is, I wish you could see Nova Scotia here, but it's absolutely beautiful. And uh, I do a lot of wildlife work, mainly birds. You know, I do bird surveys and things for, Birds Canada, and I do surveys in the States as well, so. Yeah. And that being said, though, if there was another script that caught your eye in the same way, would you come back to doing theater, or? You, boy, you, I think you have some kind of intuitive sense about things, Charles. <laughs> Just the other day, I had to, to read, it was nothing, it was just with a group of women friends here, and I was reading some poems of Mary Oliver to them. And then they kept saying, oh, read some more. 
we love to hear your voice. And I read some more and I came back later and I thought, oh my God, I'm missing performing. Oh. I could feel it. I could feel it. So actually on Monday, one of my good friends, who's a great poet here, she's coming over and we're gonna talk about this very thing, how I'm not sure I had the stamina to go back to do any stage work, but something is calling me, you know, like, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's, it's more than just me wanting to do it. You understand? Yeah. For me, it, it has to be a great piece of theater that somebody's written. And those are hard to come by and roles for people my age. And so I would love to ask you just one final question, which is what advice would you give to, with such a long career to somebody just starting out as an actor? Wow, somebody starting out. Well, you follow your heart's delight. If you feel, if you feel that this is something you really, really, really want to do, you can't do anything else. You just can't. Just keep on trying. It takes much longer now to make a foothold than it did when I was starting out. Um, back in, you know, in the, in the 60s, early 60s, we give a career two years. Now I'd say five to seven. You have to work for five to seven before you may be able to make a living at it. You may be able to be getting those callbacks that I talked about all the time. It's much, it takes much longer, but people are living longer and they're in good health longer. So it's fine. So I'd say if you still feel true to it and you can take the rejection because the rejection is constant. Yeah. You have to be able to pick yourself up. Hopefully the next day, get back on your feet and go out again. So you have to be able to do that. And you'll know if you can't take rejection, and you're sad all the time, and you're feeling sick to your stomach all the time, it may not be the right profession for you. And yeah. you just got to, got to talk it over with your people who are close to you. Because there's plenty other ways to find wonderful things to do without feeling that kind of awfulness. Yeah. So be true to yourself. And if it's, if you feel like there's no place else you want to be except on the stage. No place else. Then go for it. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. And remember to come back next time when I am joined by three-time Tony nominee, Tanya Pinkins. Tanya Pinkins made her Broadway debut in Merrily We Roll Along, and she went on to appear in Jelly's Last Jam, Chronicle of a Death Foretold, Play On, The Wild Party, Radio Golf, A Time to Kill, Holler If You Hear Me, and perhaps most famously as Caroline Thibodeau in Caroline or Change on Broadway. She has also made many appearances off-Broadway, including in All's Well That Ends Well, Measure for Measure, and The Merry Wives of Windsor in Shakespeare in the Park, and Rashida Speaking, The Caucasian Chalk Circle, Storefront Church, and most recently The Public Theater's 2022 production of A Raisin in the Sun. She is also the director of the new film Red Pill. You won't want to miss this interview, so make sure to tune back in for that, and thanks for listening.